I do need to give a shout out to one of our labor and delivery nurses, Dara. Now, all of our labor and delivery nurses are fantastic, but Dara definitely earned her pay during one of our recent last call nights. This patient came in belligerent, hallucinating, and obviously on some illicit substance. So the question was, well, how can we medically sedate her in a way that's safe and that's allowed and that's evidence-based without causing some sort of fetal jeopardy? Well, that's the topic of our podcast. What kind of sedation can we do in the acutely agitated patient? And we're going to talk about the acutely agitated patient and what could actually cause that. I mean, is it okay? Is it ethical to snow these patients? Well, the short answer is absolutely yes. But we're going to mention and go over the reasons why. And what about physical restraints? Is that approved? Well, even though they're definitely frowned upon because they're just not the most humane option at times in order to prevent physical harm to the patient herself or another staff member, it may be indicated. Now, that's not what we did here because medical therapy worked, but these are things to consider. So again, in a very real world scenario, we're going to cover the acutely agitated patient and ways to sedate her to prevent self-harm or harm of others in a way that's evidence-based. Let's get to the acutely agitated patient now. Hi, this is Michael Jr., fourth-year medical student at Texas A&M University and soon-to-be OBGYN. This is Clinical Pearls. Even though we're talking about this in terms of the pregnant, acutely agitated patient, the medical regimens are absolutely the same whether the patient is pregnant or non-pregnant, male or female. Acute agitation in the pregnant patient should be treated as an obstetric emergency because it jeopardizes the safety of the patient and her fetus as well as others in any location. Uncontrolled agitation has been associated with OB complications like preterm delivery, placental abnormalities, postnatal death, and even spontaneous abortion. Current data on the reproductive safety of drugs commonly used to treat agitation like benzodiazepines, typical first-generation antipsychotics, and even things like diphenhydramine or Benadryl suggest no increase in risk beyond the background risk of 2-3% to of congenital malformations that exists in the general population, and that's even when used in the first trimester. Now, here's something that we have to lay down as foundation right off the bat. Acutely agitated patients represent true threats of physical harm to either themselves or others and is viewed as an emergency. So they're just not, you know, acting nuts for a variety of reasons. I mean, we'll get to that in a minute, but it could be a true emergent condition because of the self-harm or harm to others that they can cause. Agitation is defined as the physical manifestation of internal distress. Now, this can be due to an underlying medical condition like delirium or to a psychiatric condition or to even acute intoxication or withdrawal. It can be due to psychosis, mania, or even a personality disorder. Now, in the patient in our situation who was acting just completely belligerent and was actively hallucinating, the patient's talk screen did come back for amphetamines and methamphetamines. 
Now, for the agitated pregnant woman who is not belligerent at presentation, then triage should start with a basic assessment of airway, breathing and circulation, as well as vital signs and glucose level. A thorough medical history and a description of events leading to the presentation should be obtained from the patient or the patient's family or friends if they're with them, and it's vital for narrowing the diagnosis and the deciding treatment of whatever is the condition that's causing the agitation. The initial eval should include consideration of delirium, trauma, intracranial hemorrhage, a coagulopathy, thrombocytopenia, amniotic and venous thromboembolism, hypoxia or hypercapnia, and signs or symptoms of intoxication or of withdrawal from substances could also be like etiologies. Now, from 20 weeks to 6 weeks postpartum, eclampsia can also be considered in the differential diagnosis, especially if they're presenting in a post-ictal or a post-seizure state, they can sometimes have acute agitation. Ruling out these conditions is important since the management of each differs vastly from the protocol for agitation secondary to psychosis, mania, or delirium. So in this disclosure, we're going to talk about acutely sedating a patient who is acutely agitated because of either psychosis, a drug issue, or drug withdrawal. Let's step back for just a minute. Remember that acute agitation is not only a diagnosis, but it could be the symptom of some larger issue from medical conditions like we just discussed. That includes hypoxia, hypoglycemia, a post-ictal or a post-seizure state, and so on. Or it could be a psychiatric condition or, of course, it could be due to an illicit substance. So, again, I'm not trying to say that this one thing that we're going to talk about here is how to treat everything. If you identify a true source, then treat that true source. Now, in the case that we're talking about, again, the patient was totally high. I mean, high off the walls. And we needed to acutely sedate her to prevent self-harm and harm to our nurses and to our staff. Okay, now let's get into some potential protocols for medical sedation of the acutely agitated patient. Reproductive safety of first generation, in other words, typical neuroleptics like haloperidol, is supported by extensive data that's accumulated over the past 50 years. No significant teratogenic effects have been documented with this drug class. Now, in general, mid- and high-potency antipsychotics, of which Haldol is a part of, are often recommended because they are less likely to have associated sedative or hypotensive effects than some low-potency antipsychotics like corpromazine. Now, that may be a significant consideration for a pregnant patient, so stick with something that the data supports like haloperidol. Now, there is a theoretical risk of neonatal extrapyramidal symptoms with exposure to first-generation antipsychotics in the third trimester, okay? So we're talking about things like Haldol. However, the data to support this are from sparse case reports and very small observational studies. So this risk of potential neonatal extrapyramidal symptoms with exposure in the third trimester seems just that, more theoretical. Well, what about diphenhydramine, regular old Benadryl? 
recent studies of antihistamines like diphenhydramine have not reported any risk of major malformations with first trimester exposure to this drug class. Dose-dependent anticholinergic adverse effects of antihistamines can induce or exacerbate delirium and agitation, although these effects are classically seen in elderly, non-pregnant patients. So, given the lack of adverse effects and the low risk, diphenhydramine is considered safe to use in pregnancy, not just for allergic conditions, but for the acutely sedated patient as well. What about benzos? Well, benzodiazepines are not contraindicated for the treatment of acute agitation in pregnancy. Once again, they are not contraindicated. Reproductive safety data from meta-analysis and large population-based cohort studies have found no evidence of increased risk of major malformations in newborns born to mothers on prescription benzos even when used in the first trimester. While third trimester exposure to benzos has been associated with, quote, floppy baby syndrome, end quote, and potentially neonatal withdrawal, they are more likely to occur in women on long-term prescription benzotherapy rather than the acute treatment of the acutely agitated patient. No study has yet assessed the risk of these outcomes with a one-time acute exposure in labor and delivery or the emergency department. However, the risk is likely minimal given the aforementioned data observed in women on long-term prescription benzotherapy. All right, so what have we talked about here? We've talked about first-generation, mid- and high-potency antipsychotics like Haldol. We talked about diphenhydramine. And then, of course, we've talked about benzos. But what about the protocol? How do we use use these together as a protocol for the acutely agitated patient. Well, of course, remember that interventions should progress in a stepwise manner, starting with the least restrictive and then progressing towards more restrictive interventions, including pharmacotherapy or potentially the use of a seclusion room. And then last, again, last resort and only if needed is physical restraints. Although, again, that's kind of frowned upon now for various reasons. But remember that if left untreated, agitation in pregnancy is independently associated with outcomes that include premature delivery, low birth weight, growth retardation, postnatal death, and even spontaneous abortion. The risk of these outcomes greatly outweighs any potential risk from psychotropic medication use during pregnancy. Now, before medications are considered, attempts should be made to engage with and de-escalate the patient in a safe, non-stimulating environment. Now, if this approach is not effective, then the patient should be offered oral medications to help her with agitation. But, of course, if she is not able to take oral medication or is unwilling, then parenteral administration of therapy should be considered. For patients with mild to moderate agitation, then single-agent therapy should be considered, starting with diphenhydramine. Other options include a benzodiazepine, likely lorazepam, especially if alcohol withdrawal is suspected. Now, in the patient scenario that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, our patient was not mild or moderately agitated. I mean, she was severely agitated. We were really concerned about her safety and the safety of our support staff and our nursing staff. So for this patient, single agent therapy would just be not appropriate. So we chose a typical cocktail and let's talk about that cocktail next. So 
Severe agitation may require a combination of agents. A commonly used safe regimen, which has been traditionally called the, quote, B-52 bomb, end quote, is Haldol, 5 milligrams, lorazepam, 2 milligrams, and diphenhydramine, or Benadryl, at 25 to 50 milligrams. Now, that's typically given not just for the extra sedation, but more as prophylaxis for dystonia. Now, the patient's response, of course, should be monitored closely as dosing may require modification as a result of pregnancy-related changes in drug distribution, metabolism, and clearance. Now, although no study has assessed the risk associated with one-time exposure to any of these classes of medications in pregnancy, the aforementioned data on long-term exposure provides reassurance that single exposure in pregnancy in acute conditions like acute agitation, whether it's in the ER or labor and delivery, has little or no effect on the developing fetus. So that's good news. All right, now as we get to the end, we do have to give a quick word about physical restraints. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, if the patient is at imminent risk of self-harm or harm of others, then physical restraints may be required. Of course, as always, check with your institution's policies and procedures to make sure that you've documented everything because restraining a patient, pregnant or not, always has some legal and some ethical issues that we're all kind of uncomfortable with. But remember, there is a place for it if that's the last, and it should be, last resort if everything else has failed. Physical restraints, along with emergency medications, may be indicated when the patient poses, again, a threat to herself or others. However, during the second and third trimesters, physical restraints, like the typical four-point restraint, may predispose the patient to inferior vena cava compression syndrome and compromised placental blood flow because she's lying on her back. So don't forget the basic principles of obstetrical care also need to be adhered to. So, in pregnant patients after 20 weeks, they should be positioned in the left lateral D-cube with the right hip positioned 10 to 12 centimeters off the bed with either pillows or blankets. And when restraints are used in pregnant patients, frequent checking of vital signs and physical assessment is needed to mitigate risks. Now, I mentioned this at the beginning. Thankfully, we did not have to physically restrain our patient. But again, I have to say it. Make sure that you follow your policies and procedures in your institution. And should you have to restrain a patient, do so for the shortest, briefest amount of time as possible and document everything, especially that you're concerned about patient self-harm or harm of others. We try not to use restraints at our institution because it's just, you know, it makes people uncomfortable. Uh, and I haven't had to do that in over five years because this B-52 cocktail when used correctly and again ruling out other physical or medical conditions that we have to correct seems to do the trick. Our case was straight out of The Exorcist. I mean, my goodness, she was screaming bloody murder. She was hallucinating, seeing people in the room. She was yelling. And of course, we had other laboring patients in other rooms on the unit. So the amount of stress in our department was just incredibly high because of this one, unfortunately, really high patient. So thankfully, our B-52 bomb, our B-52 cocktail really worked. And after she got some sedation, she quickly progressed to a vaginal delivery at 36 weeks, proving again that it may be that catecholamine surge from acute agitation in addition to her amphetamines and methamphetamine use. I mean, it just kicked in preterm labor and it kicked it up a notch and that kid came flying out. 
Thankfully, the baby seemed to be fine in, in its immediate assessment. But these things happen. So I thought it was important to cover the acutely agitated patient. Look, you've got to look for a source. Look for illicit drugs. Look for hypoglycemia. Look for head trauma. Look for electrolyte disturbances. I mean, do our due diligence to find out what is going on. We don't want to just know people because we can. We want to find out what the problem is so that we can treat them accordingly. And of always, as always, remember, what if that's your sister? What if that was your wife? What if that's your daughter? So always remember, even though it's frustrating for the staff, to have compassion and just show just love for humanity, even though these patients can sometimes drive us nuts. Thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.